in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah has it all. Isaiah is, um, it's, the, it's the full picture. It's, it's everything. Um, all right, class, so we're doing the through the Bible. How many books are in the Bible? 66. 66. Awesome. 66 in the Bible. 66 books in the Bible. Guess how many chapters are in the book of Isaiah? 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Uh, to the book, there is uh, you know, roughly three-fourths of the Old Testament is dedicated. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, three-fourths of the Bible, the entire Old Testament is dedicated to law and judgment and ritual. Law, judgment, ritual, those are like the major themes of the Old Testament. New Testament, we get something completely different. We get grace and hope as the major themes. Isaiah is exactly the same. Isaiah has more hope in it than any other book in the Old Testament. It's cool. It's the full picture. And so we get, uh, it is a basically, it, it's a snapshot of the entire Bible. And is it, is it a coincidence that there's 66 books? I, did the guys actually, the guys that put it together, they made the canon, did they set it up that way? I don't think we really know. Do we know? We don't know. We have no idea. I think it's cool. I think, I think that's just the way that God works. He likes these little cool, you know, things that, that keep our interest, keep us fascinated in his word. There's something special about it. There's, it is more than, it was divinely inspired. And so we get, to, we get to see these little, these little cool things in the scripture. Now this part of the Bible, as we're moving forward in the whole, the, the general narrative, the major story, the, you know, what do we get from the scriptures itself? Right now, and in, in where we're at, in, we're going chronologically, so if you're following along, you're going to see that we should not be on Isaiah right now, we should be on Ezra but we're going chronologically. We're doing it for my sake because I will go crazy flipping back and forth chronologically. So we're moving on chronologically and the next uh, major story is the story of Isaiah. Uh, we ended last week with uh, Ecclesiastes, with King Solomon, and he is the wisest guy the, on the planet. He is the priest king. He is the teacher. He is the critic. And he ends his life saying everything is meaningless. He hands over the reins to his son, Rehoboam. How would you like it if your dad was the wisest guy on the planet? How would that make you feel if you had to inherit that responsibility of, you know, well, yeah, my dad can beat up your dad. Oh, yeah, well, my dad's the wisest guy that ever lived. And he is, he's the richest guy on the planet. How would you like to inherit that type of responsibility? But all of these wise sayings, all of this input, all of this data that Solomon had, we can see that his life derailed. And immediately, right out of the gate, Rehoboam's life just completely disintegrates, derails. He throws the entire nation into full-blown civil war. It's quite possible that there was the largest battle ever fought because of Rehoboam. Interesting, huh? The largest battle ever fought. Some 900,000 people could have died because of the stubbornness of an arrogant young man that would not pay attention to godly counsel. He had to do it on his own. It's, it's fascinating. And so um, uh, they split. Rehoboam the son is really naughty. 
because he was because he he forced slave labor labor because he wanted uh, because he wanted more control more power. Then it gets confusing in the names. But Jeroboam started the civil war, split off, and we have the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Who are the good guys, class? Judah's the good guys, Israel's the bad guys. For, I know it's confusing, isn't it? It's totally confusing. Uh, and of course, it goes back and forth a little bit. I mean, Israel does do good stuff. But generally speaking, Israel is naughtier than Judah. Judah is the one that, uh, that David's line is from. It is, it's the priestly um, it's a priestly nation. It is where the temple is in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom completely goes south. They introduce idol worship, all these other naughty things. So that's where we're at. We've gone through a couple of kings, and now we, are, we get to see this incredible prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah is, um, well, he's reading the newspaper, he knows that Israel and Judah, they have been fighting in civil war for so long that they've actually weakened each other. So the glory days are gone. Camelot is over. There is, there's just so much bickering and infighting and, and intrigue that, that it's weakened this incredible, beautiful kingdom. The, the land with flowing with milk and honey is now, it's now been corrupted. And... Isaiah, probably one of the most important, insightful prophets, he sees the world changing. And a lot of it he is getting from God, but good chances are he's just reading the newspaper. Like he knows, uh, well, maybe we'll talk about this later when we get into uh, the Babylonian captivity, but he sees the writing on the wall. He knows that, that things are coming apart. He, he sees that there's some very powerful kingdoms in the north and they're going to come down and they want control over the trade routes. They want control over the money. They want control over the finances and they have enough power. They're going to get it. He sees it coming. And so Isaiah, is, he begins to say, we need to, we need to straighten up. This is what prophets do. Two types of prophets. There's literary prophets, and then there is literal prophets. There's spoken word prophets. And the time of the spoken word prophets is over. So uh, Elisha and Elijah, as far as we know, they never wrote a word. There's no books named Elisha, or there's no, there's no book of Elijah. But we know that, uh, that they didn't write anything. If they did, we don't have it. It would be amazing if we did, but we don't. But now we're going into this season of literary prophets. And Isaiah kind of goes, he kind of runs this line of both being somebody that's writing things down, and at the same time, he, is, um, he does what prophets do best. He gets into the court, he stands before the king, and he annoys the heck out of them. And he tells them that you have to shape up. You have to do the time. You are sending the nation into turmoil. And if you don't pay attention, it's all going to be over. And so this is, what, this is what Isaiah is speaking into it. He is, again, he is a powerful, typical prophet, but something happens to him. He has an incredible experience with the Lord. He has one of the most powerful encounters 
with the Lord. And we're going to read about it. We're going to look at chapter 6, and then we're going to skip back to chapter 1. So if you want to get your Bibles out, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll start at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, those are angels, seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings covering their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Ezekiel has the same vision, by the way. And it's the, it's the, it's the same situation. Ezekiel is in the presence of God. He is in the temple. Some say that you know, you're, you're in, you're in uh, the courtroom or you're in the palace of a king. You're sitting at his, at his feet. In essence, he is judging. Isn't that a terrifying thought to think about? So he is judging. And Ezekiel sees it. He sees the same exact vision. He sees the same exact angels. He elaborates a bit. And he says, one has the face of a lion. The other has a face of an eagle. The other has a face of a bull. And the other has a face that looks like a man. It looked like a man. Thank you. <laughs> so, that's a, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, anyway. Um, personal jokes between me and my dad. Uh, this same vision that Isaiah has. Sorry. We just need to laugh, right? We need, you have no idea what I'm laughing at. That's okay. It's probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> All right, so this vision that Isaiah has, Ezekiel has it, and John the Revelator has it. And these four creatures, these four images, we can, we can really speculate and we can really dump into it. Uh, you could say that it easily represents the four Gospels. So if you, um, if you grew up in, in traditional church or Catholic church, you would have seen these images like all over the walls. And, and they're important. And so we see Isaiah, he's getting a glimpse of the future, and this image is so important. The, the, these four really weird six-winged creatures, of what in the world do they look like? We don't know. But the, the, again, the two wings are used for flying, two wings are covering the mouth, and the eyes are not the, 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 the covering their eyes and, what, and the ears, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Whatever it looked like, whatever these angels with six wings and weird faces looked like, uh, the point is, well, here's the point. And I'll, at, verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshing, and the threshing, excuse me, the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. That's the point. We have no idea what they look like. I mean, we have a general idea of what they look like. But the point is, is Isaiah is like going, oh my gosh, 
Okay, a typical you know, prophet that has the spiritual gift of annoyance. That's his gift. He annoys people. He annoys kings and rulers and priests. That's what he does best. And now he has this incredible picture of God, and he goes, woe is me. Basically, he's freaking out on the inside. Whatever these images are that he sees, I mean, and does he see it in a dream or is it an open vision? Does his body get taken up into the third heaven? Who knows how this happened? He just says that he saw this. It was probably something like an open vision, but it changed his life. And he became a different man from the very experience of seeing this. And he says, woe is me. I am completely undone. I have seen the face of God. This is, a, this, is a, this is a comment that we see over and over again. When men and women see the face of God, things change. Their life is radically changed. Whenever a man or a woman sees the face of God, they encounter his presence, things, things change. Your life is never the same. He says, woe is me. I am ruined. Their translation says, I'm completely undone. Okay. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. All right. What is the thing? Oh, you need to get to the good part, right? Then one of the angels, one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And for whom will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go tell the people. So even his mission changed. His message changed after he had this encounter with God. And what is amazing, again, this angel gets these tongue, gets this, again, was it, what, what in the world was going on here? Well, let's just, just take it literally. So an angel reaches into the fire with tongs, takes, the, takes a hot flaming coal with his hands, and he touches it on Isaiah's lips. Because what does Isaiah say? Isaiah says that I am a man of unclean lips, and our nation is an entire nation of people that have unclean lips. And that point, their point of weakness, is the thing that gets burned. It's the thing that gets cleansed. It's the thing that gets sanctified. And so he knows unclean lips. What's he doing? He's saying bad words? No. Is it a nation that, that, uh, that has a potty mouth? Yeah, that's not the point. It's not that. What do, we know, what do we know about our friends, the Israelites, that were stuck in the desert? Or they, what did they do in the desert for 40 years? They complained, they grumbled, they griped, they, um, they made excuses. They didn't want to do the time. And it gets vocalized through the mouth. The mouth, the Bible says, is a powerful tool. It is a weapon, it is a double-edged sword, 
whatever comes out of your mouth reflects your heart. It is the rudder for your soul. It will direct your life. What you say will direct your life. And the mouth, the tongue of Isaiah was ruining his life. And that's what needed to be touched. That's what needed to be cleansed. And that's exactly what happened. So he becomes a different man. And his, again, his message changed. How he communicates to the people of Israel changes. What he sees take place changes. All right, here's the difficult point. Where Israel is at. Like I said, uh, they've read the newspaper. There's powerful enemies to the north. They're going to be coming down soon. The kingdom of Assyria. There's, there's, this is complicated. When you're reading your Bible, there's a place called Syria, and then there's a place called Assyria. Assyria is in northern Iraq. Um, they're bad guys. They're, they're, they're horrible people. And they come down... And they take the northern kingdom of Israel and they put them into slavery. They do this in 722 BC. We have record of it. We have actually Assyrian records of this. We have photographic record of Sennacherib who came down in 701 and tried to to sack Jerusalem, but he did because because of God, actually, because of one man cried out to God. And then in 586, a new kingdom called Babylon comes down and takes the good guys of Judah, puts them into slavery. And eventually, this is the whole narrative of Isaiah, eventually they come back, they get restored back into their nation. Well, at least the southern kingdom, Judah does. Now, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like the Rams coming back to Los Angeles. They have, been, they have been in captivity in St. Louis for 20 years. The evil empire of St. Louis. And they have come home. They are where they belong. They are back in the land flowing with milk and honey. And their temple, the Colosseum, is in ruins. And it is the good kings that are going to fix it up so that we can return to our temple and worship once again in peace and harmony, right? So the Colosseum, they're fixing the Colosseum up. It's going to, we, will, we will be whole again. Our culture will be made whole again because we have the rams back, right? Good. Okay, you understand? You understand what's going on? This is what's going on. Eventually this happens. Uh, Judah returns like the rams have returned, right? But the first people to get hauled off were the, was, was the nation of Israel, Right? They don't get to come back. And that is what we're praying for for the Raiders. We, we don't, right? <laughs> right? But it's the, it's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. We don't, do we really want the Raiders to come back? Because they're, they're the bad guys, right? So the Rams are the good guys and the Raiders are the bad guys. And we don't want necessarily the Raiders to come back because they're going to cause problems. All right, so you guys understand what's going on historically. We, we're, we are living it out. It is a, it is a, it's a real-life illustration. It's exciting. 
Now, if the, if the Raiders do come back, it's messed up my illustration completely. But for the most part, it, is, it, it, works, it works perfectly. It, it is, it's an amazing thing. All right, here we go. Let's flip back to chapter one. So now you understand what's going on. You understand the historical context. You understand the man Isaiah. And you need to know why. You need to know why they get hauled off to begin with. Now, if you've been following along, you notice in Kings and in Chronicles, the reason why they get hauled off is because they're naughty, right? They're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. But in Isaiah, we get some very specifics. Before, the specifics were they were just worshiping other idols. They were worshiping other gods. You might be thinking to yourself, that's kind of a, that's a little overkill, right? Why would God... Oh, yeah, I forgot this part. Um, who sent Israel and Judah into slavery. God did. It is one of the most difficult things to get our heads around because it, it, was, it was God's design and his will to use Assyria to haul off the people of Israel because they were so naughty, because they were so bad, because they fell into idolatry, and they've done some other things that we're going to highlight in Isaiah, but it was God's God sent them down. In Chronicles, it says it this way. In Chronicles, it says, I am going to use the nation of Assyria to shave your heads and your beards, actually your entire body. You can just let your imagination go there. That's how graphic it is. And so the nation of Assyria is God's tool of discipline. At Oh, isn't that painful? God's saying you got to do the time. You got to do the time. Like, you need to be cleansed. You need to be purged. You need a little bit of discipline in your life. <laughs> I'm going to use Assyria to do it. That's like, oh, okay. The, we, it, if you're having problems with this, like I have, uh, let's come Wednesday night and we'll talk about it. The Bible is good, it is the good word. God is good all the time. And it's just, once you see it, once you read this thing in its entirety, it makes complete sense. All right. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Does anybody have rebellious children. Do you, okay, so now it makes sense, right? All right, now it makes sense. The ox knows his master, the donkey knows his manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, oh, a sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, Children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. And they have turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? All right, ready? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. And from your sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. 
only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. All right. All right, just think about it as an individual. Your head and your heart are completely gone. You're a lost cause. You have lost all integrity. The goal of the Christian, I believe, one of the goals, is to live in a kingdom lifestyle. To be a Christ follower means that you do so with integrity, with wholeness of being. And Jesus hits on this a lot. Mind, body, soul, and spirit. Like every part of you, and this is the difficult part, every part of you needs to be in balance. If any part of your life is out of balance, Holy Spirit will come in and he will push on your buttons. And you cannot give the Holy Spirit lame excuses like I gave my doctor. Do you see what I'm saying? You can't, he won't buy it. You can't give the Holy Spirit excuses like, oh, I'm too busy. My prescription ran out. I had problems with, you know, I had problems, I had technical issues. He doesn't care. The Holy Spirit doesn't care about your excuses. He wants you to pay attention to that specific area in your life that it's out of balance. What is it? Is it your mind? Is your mind out of balance? Are you, are you thinking wrong thoughts? Are you thinking wrong thoughts about yourself or about others? Are you just consumed with negativity that it's eating? It's actually gotten past your mind and into your soul? Or maybe it's your soul. Maybe it's your emotions. Maybe, maybe God wants you to pay attention to your emotional health. Like you're the smartest guy on the planet but you're an emotional basket case. You have a high intellectual IQ, but your emotional intelligence, you're an infant. He wants you to pay attention to these things. Maybe it's your body. Maybe doing time means that you need to do the gym. Right? What is it? Mind, body, soul, spirit. Maybe it's, your, maybe it's your relationships. Maybe you'd rather just stick your head in the sand with certain relationships instead of working on them. It's a lot easier just to, I don't know, it's, it's a lot easier just to go to church than to work on your marriage. Does that hurt? It is. It's much more easy to be spiritual than to take responsibility. Wow, oh, I hit a nerve. All right. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste and overthrown by strangers, and you're completely clueless. They're just like watching. The, they're watching their country falling apart, and they're not doing anything about it. They're too busy fighting with themselves because they're a divided nation. The daughter of Zion is left like the shelter, like a shelter in the vineyard. Dang it. Um, all right, let's get to the good part. I got to get to this part. Uh, let's skip. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord. You, okay. Uh, 
I gotta get this part. Okay, back up to eight, I'm sorry. I have to do this. The, daughters, the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in the field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord God Almighty has left some survivors. So there was remnants that were left, both in Israel and in Judah. So um, the kingdoms only took the best. They only took the smart and wealthy and educated people out of, Egypt, out of Israel and out of Judah. They only took people with resources. And then they left a remnant, both in Israel and both in Judah. So they weren't completely destroyed. Hmm? So unless the Lord God, God Almighty has left us some survivors, we would, be, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Okay, for those of you who are around for Genesis, did I talk about it? I don't think I talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know, you know the cultural reference. Sodom and Gomorrah were the worst cities on the planet. They were so bad. I mean, it, they were so disgusting. Um, the, the, cities were, the cities were run um, by a system of, of rape, murder, and, and perversion. Okay? Rape, murder, perversion. That was, the, that was the cultural values of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is what they dealt in. They dealt in human trafficking and sex slavery, and, and, and you, know, you, would, you would subjugate your, your, your neighboring cities by raping everybody. God wasn't happy, and he smoked them all. However you feel about that, that's just what happened. If you have problems with God you know, killing an entire city, you can talk to him about it when you go to heaven, but that's what happened. He killed them all. It's tough, but he does. So fire fell down from heaven and completely consumed Sodom and Gomorrah because they were so corrupt. It's called justice in God's eyes. I don't know what our PC mind would call it. But for him, it was justice. This is horrible. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, listen to the law of your God, you people of Gomorrah. What is Isaiah doing? He's calling Israel and Judah Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying, this is what you've morphed into. This is because you have not paid attention to the details, because your hearts have, you've let your hearts go astray, you are no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how wicked their mouths were. That's when they spoke, this is the type of evil that they spoke. The multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams. Oh, but we like the rams now, right? Okay. <laughs> I, I have had it. See, I told you that it all ties together. It's so spiritual. Um, I, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lamb and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked, you, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons, your Sabbaths, and your convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies anymore. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. This is God speaking. 
They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Get that? Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. So Isaiah reveals one of the major themes of what went wrong. Before we saw an emphasis on idolatry, Isaiah is going to point out justice. Justice for the poor. Justice for the downtrodden. What's God saying here? God is saying, I don't like your worship anymore. I don't like your rituals. Who told you to do all these rituals? And they're thinking to themselves, well, actually, you did, didn't you? Because we have, we have this thing called the Torah, which you gave to Moses, and you told us that the ritual is important. And he, God is saying, no, no, I don't. Isaiah does eventually say that, okay, you can have both. But your offerings and your sacrifices and your gatherings and even the way that you sing, it has become detestable to me because there's no justice. You're just showing up for church. You don't care for the poor. You're not taking care of business. You're not doing the time. Isaiah is the first book that really introduces Messiah. Messiah comes into the picture. Like us Christians, we can really push stuff. Like, you know, we see Messiah in Genesis. Like, you know, he will, um, you know, the enemy of God's going to bite his foot and he was going to crush his heel. And we go, yeah, Messiah. We, that's, there's Jesus right there. We will, we will push this stuff. Like, when I've been doing this whole series, because I believe it, every time the angel of the Lord shows up, we have, we have Jesus or we have the presence of God in, in some special way, some special connection that draws us into a relationship with God and not a system. But Isaiah is the first book that says Messiah is coming and he is going to take on the sin the iniquities of the world. He's going to touch the world with a coal and is going to burn away its sin. And even our Jewish friends can't deny that in Isaiah, Messiah is all over the place. Our Jewish friends just don't believe that Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is our Messiah. He is the only way, he is the only truth, he is the only life, and I pray for the nation of Israel that they meet my Jesus. But they don't know him. They don't know him like we do. They should. All right, I need to get the band and ushers coming up to the front. James, chapter four, verse six says, but we have more grace. The idea that we have more grace, that we have, we're breaking out of this law, judgment, rules, complications, 
We are now in the area of hope. We have more grace. And the scriptures say this. God opposes the proud. Get this in your head. Some of you need this. God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. How many people need some favor in your life? You need favor with God and you need favor with man. Okay, you know what? Here's the key. Here's here's the key to get into the door. You You need to get rid of your arrogance and you need to humble yourselves. God opposes the proud, yet he gives favor to the humble. Resist the devil, he's going to flee from you. That's spiritual warfare. Don't pick a fight with the devil, you resist him and he has to go. You win that way when you resist him, when you ignore him, when you don't, when you don't use him for your excuses. I can't find my, my prescription. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, 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 see, the devil, did, devil didn't make you do it. You did it because you wanted to do it. Don't, don't use him as an excuse. You, you resist him and he'll flee from you. James goes on to say, and if you are in leadership in this church, we are going to be taking a very hard look at this in the next year or so. James goes on to say, wash your hands, you sinners. And this is gospel. This is inside of grace. And purify your hearts, you double-minded person. So this is inside of an ever-increasing grace. What's he saying? We have to take responsibility for our own sin. Wait, Pastor Josh, I thought that Jesus was the one for the forgiveness of our sin. Yeah, he is. We have to have him. He's the one that cleanses us. But James and Isaiah and everybody else says that we are responsible for our sin. James goes as far as to say, wash your own hands and purify your own hearts, you sinners and you double-minded people. Quit living in two different worlds. Commit. Serve. Say what Isaiah says. I'm I'm a man of unclean lips. My rudder has messed up my life. My tongue has screwed everything up. Because it's reflecting my heart. Oh, I am undone. Yet, here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. Work through me, a broken vessel. That's a man that has washed his hands and has cleaned his soul and that has been purified by fire. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you're a good God. And God, I pray right now that you just work on our minds. You work on our minds that will say stuff that God isn't good, that, you know, in the Old Testament, he killed lots of people. Therefore, he cannot be good. But when we see the big picture, when we see your plan of redemption, God, we know you're good. We know that you have a heart for all nations, not just that stubborn, stiff-necked nation called Israel, but you have a heart for all nations. And if you could love that nation, you could love any nation. And so God, right now I just pray that we will be people of integrity and people of courage, that we will align ourselves to the root of Jesse, that we will see your hope 
that we'll focus more on your hope than on your judgment. We thank you, Lord. Amen.